Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Hekigan Roku Case 11 Obaku's Gobblers of Dregs Ango's Introduction The Buddha's supreme power is wholly within his grasp. All the souls and all the spirits of heaven and earth are under his command. Even his casual words and sayings amaze the masses and arouse the crowds. His every gesture and action removes the sufferers' chains and knock off their kangs. If a transcendent man appears, the Buddha meets him with the transcendent principle. Who can ever be so wonderful? If you want to understand the secret, see the following. Main subject. Obaku addressed the assembly and said, You're all gobblers of dregs. If you go on studying Zen like that, you will never finish it. Do you know that in all the land of Tang, there is no Zen teacher? Then a monk came forward and said, But surely there are those who teach disciples and preside over the assemblies. What about that? Obaku said, I do not say that there is no Zen, but that there is no Zen teacher. Secho's verse, commanding his way of teaching, but he made it no point of merit. Seated majestically over the whole land, he distinguished the dragon from the snake. Emperor Taichu once encountered him and thrice fell into his clutches. to be back here with you. Uh, some of you I haven't seen in a long time and some of you I've never met before, but it's really wonderful to have all of you here and to have you gathered together and feel your energy and your support of each other. So it's a wonderful thing. It's not something to be taken for granted. It really isn't. So today is Nyogen Senzaki Memorial All-Day Session, and when I was thinking about what I would talk about, I was thinking of Nyogen Senzaki and what he meant to us as a Zen teacher. He's a very unusual character in the world of Zen. He had no temple. He had no monastery. He had no direct successors. And yet we honor him because he was really a pioneer. We're relatively used to the idea of Zen centers scattered all around the United States and teachers here and teachers there and communities here and communities there. 
But when Yogen Senzaki came from Japan, there really were no Zen teachers in America, just as in the koan, there are no Zen teachers in the land of Tang. The land of Tang was the Tang dynasty, uh, a dynasty of China. It didn't include all of what we think of as China today, but included a large portion of it. That was perhaps the largest empire um, of its time. And it was the golden age of uh, Zen in China. This was before the persecutions of the Buddhists. And there were monasteries everywhere, some with thousands of monks. And here in America, at the time that Nyogen Senzaki came, and I don't recall the exact year that he came. Does anybody remember that? His. Yeah. Well, yeah, he, he came to, to um, America with his teacher, um, Soyan Shaku, uh, in 1905. Um, but I think he didn't stay at that time. Um, and then he came a little bit later. And when he came, literally there was no Zen practice, formal Zen practice in America. There were no monasteries, there were no Zen centers, there were no Zen teachers. And he was instructed by his teacher to be quiet and not teach for 17 years. The exact reasoning behind that we don't know, although certainly it allowed him to learn the language, to learn the culture, to learn the ways of Americans. He lived in San Francisco and worked very industrially in various odd jobs, menial jobs, um, manning a, a hotel switchboard, um, working as a, as a janitor, doing all kinds of things for 17 years before he ever began to preach to Americans. And that kind of humility and the kind of quiet strength that it takes to practice alone, year after year, just allowing the Dharma to cook, allowing your understanding to bubble up. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to think about, to contemplate, the kind of quiet dedication and humility that this man had. It's something which truly we owe him a debt of gratitude. And eventually he became friends with Soen Roshi, who was, aside from being um, a Zen priest and uh, head of a monastery, was also a poet. And it was his poetry initially that attracted Nyogen Senzaki, his haiku poetry. And they formed a deep friendship and bond, which was instrumental eventually in Edo Roshi coming to the United States. I think 
just as uh, Nyogen Senzaki planted a seed of Dharma in San Francisco and in the United States, he planted a seed in Soen Roshi of the idea of the Dharma moving from Japan to the United States. And it took quite some time. It wasn't until the late 1950s. It was 1958 when um, Soen Roshi intended to send uh, Edo Roshi to be with Nyogen Senzaki. And just before he was slated to leave, Nyogen Senzaki died. And so the, the two uh, never met in America. He did uh, meet Edo Roshi in Japan. He visited Japan once to visit Soen Roshi. But that seed, uh, the idea of spreading the Dharma, became planted firmly because of their friendship. And so in indirect ways, we owe the establishment of this temple and the mountain monastery to Nyogen Senzaki. No direct descendants in his Dharma teaching, but the Dharma net, the Dharma web that spread out from him has taken root. So, Ngasho. So thinking of Nyogen Senzaki's biography made me ponder this question of Zen teachers and what it means to be a Zen teacher, what it means to have a Zen teacher. Before Nyogen Senzaki came, there were no formal Zen practice, formal Zen teachers in America. But during the Tang Dynasty, the practice of Zen was probably at its high point in China. It probably never uh, surpassed that period. After the Tang Dynasty came persecution and the destruction of monasteries and um, Zen teachers and monks going into hiding and uh, going off into the mountains and uh, into hermitage and practicing in secret. And never again did it ever attain quite the height, uh, the dissemination and the full force that it had during the Tang Dynasty. And Obaku was, was part of that Tang Dynasty. Obaku, as most of you probably know, was Rinzai's teacher. And sometimes Rinzai is called Obaku Rinzai Zen. Obaku was the student of Yakujo, who was a student of Baso, who is sort of the grandfather of most of what became Rinzai Zen. Baso was the exact opposite of Nyogen Senzaki in that he had a monastery with many hundreds of monks and had, it said, 139 Dharma heirs. And so there were teachers all over China who had trained with Baso including Yakujo, who trained Obaku. Baso was the first Dharma teacher to um, 
manifest the particular style of Zen teaching of shouts and using the Kesaku, raining down blows on his disciples. It was a very rough and uh, vibrant, even violent uh, method of instruction. Obviously having tremendous results since he produced so many Zen masters. And Yakujo and Obaku and Rinzai adopted that style as well. They were known for being very rough. <clears throat> the last line of the verse actually refers to um, that style of teaching. The Emperor Taichu. I don't speak Chinese, so I have no idea how well that is pronounced. Anyway, it's a Japanese alliteration of the Chinese. Came to see him uh, before he ascended to be the emperor. He, uh, he was a patron of, of Zen and built monasteries. He built a monastery for Obaku. And um, Obaku was a very imposing figure. It's said that he was seven feet tall. Whether that's literally true or not, I don't know, but he was supposed to be very, very tall. And he had a big lump or a callus on his forehead, uh, reputedly from bowing so many times. That he, he, part of his practice was bowing again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And the emperor, the emperor to be, came to visit him one day and said, "Why do you bow so much?" It's it's said in the, it said. Uh, don't rely on the Buddha, don't rely on the Dharma, don't rely on the Sangha. Why do you, why do you bow so much? And Obaku said to him, I don't rely on the Buddha, I don't rely on the Dharma, I don't rely on the Sangha, and I bow like this. And the emperor said, I don't get it, why do you, why do you bow? And Obaku slapped him. The emperor asked again. Obaku slapped him again. The emperor said, You are a rough fellow. And Obaku said, In dealing with you like this, there's no point of rough or gentle. And he slapped him again. So you can see Obaku did not really care very much about social standing. He only cared about waking people up by any means necessary. So this story, Obaku, all seven feet of him, all of his commanding frame and his Zen spirit, he addressed the assembly and said, you are all gobblers of dregs. This is, it's an interesting phrase, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful phrase, really very poetic. Um, it's also been translated as partakers of brewer's grain. Um, I, I think there's no good translation for it. What it really refers to is if you're 
brewing, if you're brewing beer or sake, at the bottom of the fermentation cask, there's going to be grain that settles to the bottom. You know, if you're, if you're brewing with rice, rice grains will fall. If you're brewing with barley, barley will fall. And you get sedimentation and grain at the bottom of the cask. To be a gobbler of dregs or a partaker of brewer's grain means you're not even, you're not even drinking the wine. You're not even drinking the beer. You're just gobbling up the, the junk at the bottom. And you're getting kind of you're getting kind of tipsy and 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 drunk, but it's such a pathetic image. You're not even you're not even sipping or quaffing good beer. You're just taking the leftovers. So you can imagine somebody somebody who's really just a pathetic character who can't, can't even afford the price of, a, of a, a, a glass of wine, but is gobbling up the leftover rice at the bottom. And he gets a little bit tipsy, but never really gets that, that full appreciation. And that is how people who rely on other people's understanding are. People who rely on other people's exposition of dharma, gobblers of dregs, just slurping up this sediment and thinking that you've experienced fine wine. If you go on studying Zen like that, you will never finish it. That's a pretty funny thing to say because no matter how you go about studying Zen, you'll never finish it. There, there is no end to studying Zen, no matter how enlightened you are. You can't stop studying it. If you stop studying it, you are not worthy of the name of a Zen practitioner. You literally have to study it every single moment of the day. And that's why he says, do you know that in all the land of Tang there is no Zen teacher? Who can possibly teach you every single moment of every single day? There's only one person that can do that. And that person is sitting on the cushion. There and there and there and there and there. And here. Whatever somebody tells you, whatever somebody gives to you, it's just dregs. It's just sediment. That's why when Rinzai, after three years in the monastery without ever going for an interview, decided that he was just really, he didn't get it. He thought, well, Maybe this Zen stuff is not for me. I better, I better get out of here. And he went to take leave, telling the head monk. And the head monk pushed him to go see Obaku. And he said, I don't know what to ask him. 
which already is a wonderful condition, not to know what to ask. And the head monk said, well, why don't you ask him what the essence of Buddha Dharma is? And so Rinzai went to see Obaku and asked what the essence of Buddha Dharma is. And Obaku, of course, hit him, pushed him out the door. And Rinzai was even more confused and said, oh boy, this is, this is pretty bad. I, 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 don't, I don't understand what's going on. So he went to the head monk and told him what happened. And the head monk said, well, I really think that you should go ask him again. And so being a good, obedient monk, Rinzai, went and asked, what's the essence of Buddha Dharma? And Abaku hit him again. Rinzai's getting desperate at this point. So he goes to the head monk and says, you know, I went, I went to him and, and I asked him the question you told me to ask him, what's the essence? Hit me. I don't know what's going on. And the head monk said, do it again. <laughs> And Rinzai, being a really dedicated Zen student, went and asked again, and again, Obaku hit him. Finally, Rinzai went to the head monk and said, well, due to my past karma, I am unable to grasp the profound meaning of our teacher's wisdom. And so I must leave the monastery. And this time, Obaku told him, well, you can leave, but go see, I forget the name of the, the teacher he went to see. Anybody remember the name of the teacher? Daigu, yes, Daigu. Go see Daigu. And so Rinzai made the pilgrimage to Daigu's monastery. I don't know how long it took him to get there. You know, there was no public transportation in China at the time. And he didn't have a mule. Um, so he probably walked. And it probably took him a good long time to get from one monastery to another monastery. And the entire time, he's pondering, 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 what the heck is going on here? I, 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 I mean, I've studied all the, all the scriptures. I've, I, I've read all of the sutras. He, he did. And, you know, we, we, we tend to think of, of um, Zen as being you know, instant awakening and, and no reliance on, on uh, letters and scriptures. And that's true. But all of these uh, teachers who keep saying that you don't rely on the scriptures all had a deep, deep knowledge of the scriptures. They all had studied the sutras backwards and forwards. So keep that in mind. You do not attain enlightenment by studying the scriptures, but you do get a very fundamental grounding in the form of reality by studying the scriptures. So don't, don't poo-poo it. A scripture study without Zazen is no good. A Zazen without scripture study you don't necessarily have to read many of the sutras, but you need to have a grounding. So Rinzai makes the pilgrimage to Daigu's monastery. And he explains to Daigu what happened. You know, he says, uh, three times I went to Obaku, 
I asked him, what's the essence of Buddha Dharma? Three times he hit me. And Daigu says, Obaku treated you with such grandmotherly kindness and you come here? And at that point, something happened that a light went on for Rinzai. Suddenly he understood what kindness is, what the teaching is, what a Zen teacher is. So what did he do? He said, ha, huh. there's not so much to Obaku Zen. And he hit Daigu three times, <laughs> punched him under the ribs. Daigu, Daigu said, you scamp, pulling the tiger's whiskers like that. I have nothing to do with you. You're Obaku's student. Go back to him. So Rinzai went back to Obaku, stayed with him for quite some time. So Obaku, seven feet tall, wielding a stick, insulting his students. You're all gobblers of dregs. How can you rely on me? You know, there's, there's something very intoxicating about Zen practice. There's something very intoxicating about um, Zazen, about clearing the mind of all of the debris, all of the junk that we've accumulated. moments of clarity, the moments of being with it. There's something exhilarating, freeing, intoxicating about that experience. So much so that there's a, a term called Zen sickness. Uh, people who have had uh, an enlightened experience and are essentially a little bit deranged because of it. They're so uh, full of the intoxication of having the experience of emptiness, of freedom, of liberation, that they can be insufferable. Um, it's, you know, it's a little like somebody who, who has, has something that they've just discovered, some great interest that they're sure is the most wonderful thing that's ever happened, and they just want to share it with everybody, and you just don't want to be around them when they're doing that. Yeah. 
That's not quite the thing that he's talking about with the gobblers of dregs. The gobblers of dregs are more like people who have had a taste of the sediment of, of Zen, who are, have some idea an idea that they've gotten from somebody else. And they're so dizzy trying to make sense out of the world with these ideas that they have that they are also sort of intoxicated, but it's not the intoxication of insight. It's the intoxication of thinking that you know something. this kind of dizziness. Is really what we're trying to get rid of when we're sitting. And not just when we're sitting, but all of the time. The um, last time that I spoke, I was talking about um, a phrase from the Tibetan Lojong uh, training and compassion, the slogans that the Lojong uh, training style use. And the traditional translation of the slogan is three objects, three poisons, three seeds of enlightenment. The three objects are the mental objects that we have whenever we are confronted with anything. The mental objects are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, or attractive, unattractive, neutral. They are our response to whatever is in front of us. Whether that thing in front of us is a human being or a political slogan or uh, some object of beauty or some absolutely awful turd. We always respond. That's what the mind does. And the initial response is, you know, you can, you can think of um, an amoeba, the very primitive response that an amoeba has towards something in the environment. Either it gobbles it up or it moves away from there because that's all an, an amoeba knows how to do. We're a little more sophisticated than an amoeba, so we either gobble it up or move away, or we make up fantasies about it. Amoebas can't make up fantasies, or at least I don't think they can. So those, those correspond to the three poisons of grasping, otherwise known as greed, aversion, otherwise known as anger or fear and delusion, which is making up fantasies. Delusion has, uh, all of these have two sides. Delusion's two sides are the delusion of ignorance, just not knowing any better, 
and the delusion of actually fantasizing, of thinking that something is something other than what it actually is. And those, those, are, those are the three poisons. So you've got three objects, the objects not being the, the actual thing in front of you, but the mental formation occasioned by the thing. Three poisons, which are the response to attractive, unattractive, neutral, or pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. If something is neutral, we get bored. We get bored. It just is not interesting enough for us. So we make up fantasies to make it more interesting. We try to control it in some way to make it more interesting. Or we just go to sleep because it's just too boring. That's that with neutral things. Things which are unattractive, we deal with by wanting to either smash them or run away from them. The old fight or flight response. And things which are attractive, we either want to gobble them up, take them into ourselves, or hold on to them. So those are the three poisons. The three seeds of enlightenment, or the three seeds of insight, is what happens when you become aware of those three poisons. What happens when you are awake? When instead of being consumed by greed, by anger, by fear, you recognize the greed, the anger, the fear, the delusion. You see into it. You see into your own response. You forget about the object out there and you see what is happening in here. That is the raw material of your life and your practice. Every moment of every day, you are confronted with causes for fear, anxiety, anger, delusion, greed, moment by moment, sometimes in very, very large, grandiose, almost grotesque ways, sometimes in very, very subtle ways. But it's always happening from one moment to the next. And it happens when, even when you're doing zazen. There'll be, there'll be a moment of clarity and you say, oh, that's really good. I want to hold on to that. Oops. Or, oh, my knee is really hurting. Ow, when the hell is he going to ring the bell? <laughs> okay, so that is your raw material. That's your raw material. So how do you turn that into insight? You've got that Zen teacher right here, right in your knee. You don't need a keisaku. You don't need Obaku hitting you. What do you do with it? You have this realization that you wanted to hold on to that, that one moment of insight in that 45-minute period when you were all over the place. You had that one minute that was really, really nice. And why can't I, why can't I get that back again? Right? I mean, it's, it's happened to all of us, right? That's what you're learning. You're not, you're not learning to, to watch your breath. Who cares? 
you know, you can watch your breath, you can watch your big toenail. The point is, what's happening? What's happening? Where are you? Where are you right now? When you're doing zazen, where are you? Are you right here right now, or are you thinking about last week, next month, that one moment that was good, you know, I got to get that back again, the pain. It's okay to be aware of all these things. In fact, you should be aware of all these things. But what do you do with that? How do you use it? That's, that's the point. How do you use it? There are no Zen teachers. There's nobody who can tell you how to do that. Nobody. You can only find that out by sitting on the cushion and watching what happens and experiencing it and allowing yourself to notice what's happening. You know, don't... Uh, so you, 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 you get into this, into this sort of groggy half-state of half-wakefulness, half-sleepiness, uh, kind of not here, not there, that's delusion. That's what happens when things are neutral. You just kind of, eh, you zone out. Be with it. Be with it. Even, even in that moment of, of falling asleep. Be with falling asleep. Know that you're falling asleep. What does it feel like? Where do you feel it? What's happening? That moment of, of pain, that, that awful pain in your hip or your, your knee, don't run away from it. Don't, don't think, well, if I just concentrate harder on my breath, I won't notice my knee. You know, you're, given, you're being given a teaching right, that, right then and there. What do you do with it? How do you become one with it? When you're out in the world and anger is welling up in you, what do you do with it? Do you blame yourself for being angry and just make things worse? Do you blame the person that you're angry at and just make things worse? Or do you notice, ah, so that's what anger feels like. Huh. Yeah, that tightness in my chest. That's what it feels like. Or fear. You know, everybody has moments of fear. Do you make it even worse by thinking that, that what you're afraid of is really important? Like, if this happens, my whole life is over? You know? Or do you say, oh, so that's what fear feels like. Oh, I'm afraid right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can live with that. Yeah, I've been afraid before. I know what that is. I can manage. You have moment by moment a Zen teacher in front of you giving you the most profound instruction. The instruction may be as painful as Obaku hitting Rinzai. The pain of anger, the pain of greed, the pain of fear. Or it can be numbing, spacing out, vegging out, just not being present at all, just kind of half awake, half asleep, not really aware. That also is a teaching, but only if you become aware of it. Say, ah, I'm spacing out. 
huh, what does that feel like? What's this all about? Huh, I've got all these, all these fantasies about how great things are going to be if just this thing happens. Huh. So um, I have some delusions going on here. Hmm, that's interesting. You know, you don't have to blame yourself for it. Everybody has that stuff going on all the time. But you can make yourself aware of it. And only if you make yourself aware of it can you do something about it. Only if you bring yourself back into this body here, feeling what you actually feel, and bring yourself back into your mind, not getting carried away by the object of your fear. You cannot be objective about what's going on as long as you're carried away. Being carried away by the object of your anger, that is poison. That is poison. Knowing what's going on, feeling what's going on, being aware of what's going on, when there's chaos, knowing, ah, this is pretty chaotic. I don't really know what's going on. And it kind of it's kind of frightening. Okay, you can deal with that. But don't lose yourself in the fright. Don't lose yourself in your idea about chaos. Keep yourself awake. Keep yourself aware. Keep yourself alive. Moment by moment, you're practicing. My wife, this, um, this past weekend, actually was unsure I was going to be able to get here with you this week because my wife um, woke up on Sunday and had horrible vertigo. She actually, she actually fell in the bathroom because she, she wasn't aware of the vertigo before she stood up and, and uh, uh, she fell down. And all day long, she, the, the world was spinning. Next day, even worse. So she's getting some treatment, and it's getting better was able to come. But that, that vertigo is, it's extremely disorienting and extremely frightening because it's like everything is spinning around and you don't know when it's going to stop and you don't know uh, where you are even because it's just like being in a whirlwind. And that is just a slightly more extreme version of being a gobbler of dregs. If you rely on somebody else's understanding instead of being awake to what is happening right this moment, you can't help but be unsettled dizzy, frightened, scared, angry. Because you have nothing to hold on to. What we're doing here is learning how to hold on to nothing. 
without becoming scared, without becoming disoriented. How to be with this constantly changing experience. Appreciating the constantly changing experience for the wonder that it is. It's an amazing thing to be in this body and with a mind that can be with this constant change. This awareness is just the most astounding, magnificent gift that you can possibly have. And yet we're constantly giving it away, just pushing it away from ourselves, letting ourselves get caught up in fantasies, letting ourselves get caught up in in holding on. So to finish up, one monk was brave enough to come forward, which considering that Obaku was seven feet tall and liked to use the Kaisaku was pretty brave. And he said, but surely there are those who teach disciples and preside over the assemblies. What about that? And Obaku said, I do not say that there's no Zen, but that there's no Zen teacher. There's no one that you can rely on to bring you to awareness. That can only happen through your own effort. And the main thing that you need is just to remember. I mean, almost, that's almost the only thing that matters is just remembering to be awake. You know, because throughout the day, you're going to find yourself somewhere else. And that's just the way life is. You're going to be here and your mind is somewhere else entirely. Your emotions are somewhere else entirely. And those are the moments that you have to remember. Ah, I'm actually here. I'm actually breathing. I'm actually hearing the sound of traffic and seeing the flame in front of me and feeling the air on my skin, huh? feeling the pain in my hip. I'm not someplace else. I'm right here. You know, and that doesn't mean that you can't plan for the future or try to make sense out of your relationships and think seriously about the world that you live in. On the contrary, you should do those things. But there's a time for that and there's a time for practice. And the time for practice is any time that you feel that you have been pushed off center that is the perfect time to practice. Any time that you feel that you are holding on, that's the time to realize there's nothing to hold on to.
I've spoken enough. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.